Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 108 of the Energy Talks podcast, and today I'm going to be speaking with Samantha Gross, who is the Director of Brookings Energy Security and Climate Initiative, and we're going to be talking about energy security, the current energy crisis, what caused it, what we can do about it, and um, what are some of the long-term trends that have been changed because of the crisis. So welcome to the interview, Samantha. Thanks very much. Is it fair to say that 2022 is the year that the world started thinking a little differently about energy? I certainly think so. I mean, we think of the energy trilemma of secure, sustainable, and affordable energy. And we were really focused on the sustainable and the affordable there for a while. And the secure kind of went by the wayside. Um, That has changed a lot this year with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I would say, and not only that, um, it seems to me, you know, like I've been reporting on the energy transition for years and years and years, and uh, we were always talking about, well, you know, electric vehicles, the inflection point will be 2030 and battery prices will come down, you know, to $100 a kilowatt hour by 2035. And all of a sudden, in the last few years, those prices have just fallen off a cliff. And it seems now that the energy transition has triggered uh, an economic transition, an ac- economic transformation, because uh, now that we're all in on renewables, we're all in on electric vehicles, we have to build new industry, we have to re-engineer some industries, the, the auto sector would be one, we have to build and re- new supply chains and re-engineer old supply chains, and it's become an economic ish- uh, issue as much as an energy issue. Would you agree or disagree? Oh, I completely agree with that. I mean, we've talked about the energy transition for a long time, but the technology hasn't been there or it hasn't been there at a sufficiently low price to make it all um, come together. Whereas we're really seeing that right now. Um, Wind and solar prices have just plummeted. Battery prices are coming down rapidly as well. And we're starting to see just better consumer uptake of electric vehicles. And they used to be a very niche product for people who cared a ton about the environment or people who just you know, were first adopters of new technology. And now you're starting to see them enter the mainstream. Um, I am seeing just on like the social media that I follow, a lot of people saying, oh, I want my next car to be electric. And that's, that's a huge shift that more people are considering it. And then I think with the new policy and the Inflation Reduction Act, to help people buy those cars, it's just going to get stronger and stronger. Now, you're based in the U.S., and uh, the Brookings Institute is a very, very well-known, I would call it kind of a moderate centrist uh, approach to to policy. And so you and you clearly, uh, I think, given the the status of of the institute, you have uh, your you know a fair amount of influence on uh, currently certainly the Biden administration and the American government policy uh, in general. 
And it seems to me that the, and I made this, asked this of other guests, so I'm going to ask it of you. It seems to me that the U.S. for a long time was kind of ignoring the energy transition. It, you know, China got this huge lead in things like EV production, electric bus production, battery supply chain. I mean, it's 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 crazy the percentage of the battery supply chain that China actually dominates. You want you want to mine lithium in the U.S. You have to send it to China to be processed and then imported back because there's very little uh, capacity here to process. It seems like the U.S. Inflation uh, Reduction Act was the United States finally waking up and saying, hang on a second, we're no longer number one in this emerging industry. We're not even number two. And we want to be number one again because, you know, that's what the U.S. does. It's always done. Exactly. Is that a fair characterization? It's fair in part. Um, I think what we saw happen here is the Chinese do industrial policy. They really, they think in advance, they think about what industries they want to encourage and subsidize. Their government is a lot more involved in the economy and in industry in general than it is here in the States. And so our government has just acted differently. We've really let the economy run. We have, um, you know, assumed that business opportunities would create successful businesses. And, you know, we don't put our hand in the economy in quite the way that the Chinese do. And I think this is a recognition that maybe a little industrial policy wouldn't hurt the United States that you see in the Inflation Reduction Act. And also, and my second thought on that is that when you think about what the U.S. can do to encourage the energy transition and move along um, in dealing with climate change, subsidies are what we have. Um, I was in Europe last week and the week before and got a lot of questions from Europeans. And I'm like, look. You're not going to get European-style climate policy here in the United States. The politics don't work. Um, what we can do is encourage businesses to do things through tax policy and subsidies. Those are the tools that we have politically. And so those are the tools we use. And so I think you're seeing this combination of a recognition to compete with China. The U.S. is going to need at least a little bit of industrial policy, plus subsidies and tax credits being the tools that we have to deal with climate change. Those two things are coming together to shape the new policy that we, we've seen, you know, that's happened in the past mm -hmm. few months. I can't let that comment go or your comments go about industrial policy in the U.S. Uh, without some comment. Now, in Canada, industrial policy is back on the table. It, it, it used to be, we, I mean, U.S. and arguably, but certainly Canada has had strong industrial policy pre-1980. And then, of course, we had, you know, Milton Friedman in the Chicago school, and we had we had Thatcher and then Reagan and Mulroney. And next thing you know, boof, we're, we're you know, that's the end of industrial policy. And all of the institutional memory of how to do industrial policy is, you know, out in the, it's retired, basically. It's, it's, we don't have it anymore. So we've got to figure out how to do this. And the Chinese are, yes, are way ahead of us. Um, but I, I can't help thinking of Mariana Mazzucato's uh, argument that don't listen to what the Americans say. The Americans have been subsidizing industry, you know, research and, and technology commercialization for decades. That's how they do things. They talk about free enterprise in the market, but really, you know, they go out and subsidize the development of the internet or, you know, any of these other technologies, which then private industry, once it's been de-risked, private industry picks it up and runs with it. So well, 
Yeah, I mean, th- there is a lot of truth to that, but I also think there's a, a role for government in innovation. Um, there are early stage investments that private firms are not well um, are not well suited for. Don't want to take the risks to do. And you use the example of the early phases of the internet, and I think that's a really good one. Before it was clear that the internet could ever be a commercial thing, before there was Amazon and Twitter and Facebook and all the things we do on the internet all day, um, th- there was no clue that this was going to be such a gigantic commercial enterprise. Um, government is well suited to do that really basic research that doesn't have, a, a, you know, a clear large commercial payout. Um, you've seen that in terms of very early stage energy technology as well. There. Private industry is not well motivated to do that. And so it's a good role for government to push the kind of technologies that we want to deal with climate change or to deal with other societal problems. And so I I don't think that, um, I think the U.S. has done it. I think to our credit, our national lab system and some other things, things like DARPA and RPE, we're good at that as a country. And I actually think when you think about where we're going with respect to the Chinese, um, that's what I want to see us do. That's what we're good at as a country, um, developing new technologies. And then we have the financial system and the, you know, everything from, you know, the financial ecosystem and you know, startup culture to get those into the, to get those into the economy. That that's a very, very good point. And it's been, I'm seeing it argued now uh, that, what the Americans still do way better than the the than China and even better than than Europe is innovate. It's innovate, and those the, the national laboratories that the American that you that the U.S. has are absolute gems. I mean, they are national treasures, and I often bring it up in the context of modeling, economic modeling, because those labs will model everything, and then policymakers have. They have data, they have information to make, you know, rational decisions, good decisions. And look in Canada, we have none of that. It's it's a national embarrassment. So just as an example, you know, we're talking about subsidizing the oil sands decarbonization to the tune of $50 billion, $50 billion which in Canada, you know, so factor of 10, there'd be like $500 billion for the U.S., and we don't even know if the oil sands companies could be competitive in a declining global oil market. I mean, this is insanity, but you guys do it really well. I mean, hats off to you. That's something, those national labs, I, I, I'm i a big, big fan of that. They're so treasures. They, they, really, they really are. But, so, but let's get back to energy security. And what are the roots of the current energy crisis from your point of view? The, the, I mean, it, the current energy crisis goes back to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it's not all as direct as you might think it, it would be. And it's also quite different for oil and for natural gas. Um, On the natural gas side, the Russians slowed down their shipments into Europe um, starting more than a year ago, last fall. And so we realize now that they were in some sense softening up Europe and and hoping to use European reliance on Russian natural gas to reduce European support for Ukraine. Um, the Russians have nearly stopped delivering natural gas to Europe. And honestly, I don't see that supply ever coming back. And I don't see Russia ever being considered a reliable supplier of natural gas again, which is a, a very interesting development. The oil side is really different. On the oil side, you have seen consumers using this as a weapon and saying, we don't want to buy Russian crude oil. 
Um, we're seeing sanctions on Russian crude oil and sanctions on um, the shipment and insurance of Russian crude oil. And so with natural gas, the Russians are using it as a weapon. With oil, you see consumers trying to use oil supply to cut back on Russian revenues and the way they fund the war in Ukraine. So I, I've got a couple of questions. And the first one is, uh, is, is Vladimir Putin an idiot? I've, I've, I am the wrong person to answer that question. <laughs> well, I, I then I then I want to I want to put forward the proposition, the hypothesis that while he may be brilliant in other ways, and I don't know the man, so but we'll assume he. I mean, he he became the you know the autocrat in Russia, so he's got to have some some gray cells. But it, I think it's an axiom of business that the one thing you don't do is really annoy your customers. And, I think and, there's a lot of truth to that. And so when it comes to business and markets and so on, he's an idiot because this he essentially taken the world's largest uh, hydrocarbon or fossil fuel exporting economy and driven a stake through it for dubious political aspirations uh, and and fantasies of, you know, bringing back czarist Russia or whatever it might be. And OK, you're not the first <laughs> ask that question well we'll we'll put it out there in the ether and you know no doubt some energy media uh part of our energy media community will answer it on 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 social media uh but let's get to to the next thing um which is uh what then do we do with particularly with oil uh because the industry since the downturn of 2014 2015 has really been chronically under investing I mean, it, it, you know, investment in exploration and production fell by a third, sorry, two thirds uh, between 2015, 2016 and, and currently. And it doesn't seem like it's going to come back. So if Russia supply, it, you know, it dwindles and we already have chronic investment in production, uh, it looks like high oil prices are here to stay. And what does that mean for energy security? Well, it's I mean, you definitely saw some, some good reasons why invest why investment in exploration and production has gone down. Um, here in the United States anyway, there was the situation where the companies that really pushed the incredible growth over the last decade or so in US oil production, they weren't making the money. They were taking all their capital and rolling it back into more production. And so there was a real push for capital discipline in that part of the industry. And so I understand that. And there's also concern about future demand. Where is demand going given the energy transition? And you know, you hear people talk about we don't need any more new fields if we're to meet the one and a half degree goal. And you have to say, well, are, are we going to meet the one and a half degree goal? That's not the same thing as saying we don't need any more in investment in exploration and production. But given the situation in Russia and given the fact that they're you know, not going to be viewed as a reliable supplier anymore, I think you will see more push for investment in ENP, but then the question becomes, and how does that get funded? Banks are definitely under pressure not to invest there, but um, you you definitely see some companies, particularly the um, you know the the national oil companies, have the ability to do that. And so I wonder what it's going to mean for the breakdown between investment in national and international oil companies, and um, it. It's just a really hard environment to invest when you don't know what the future of demand looks like. And now supply looks really uncertain too with respect to everything going on in Russia. 
So I, I'm grateful that I'm not sitting in an executive chair in an oil company somewhere trying to figure out how to plan future investments, because I think it's particularly uncertain right now. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Uh, I, you know, like most journalists, uh, especially energy journalists, we uh, subscribe to any number of you know analysts and 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 economists and so on to put out newsletters and and on the uh, on the industry side, uh, there's a lot of chatter about oh my goodness the the energy transition is going to be bumpy. It's not going to be smooth. Whoever saw an energy trans? How do you transform the global energy system and not have it being disruptive and bumpy? I mean, I have been the... saying, oh, sorry. I have been saying that to everyone who will listen. We're not going to like glide gently down the cost curve in terms of oil production because mm. people don't know how to invest. It is going to be totally bumpy on the way down. Yeah, I am in violent agreement with you on that one. Well, you know, and, and it's not like it hasn't happened in the past. I can tell you, you know, as listeners will know, because I bring this up all the time, you know, I did my my master's thesis 40 years ago on the transition from uh, horses and and steam power to uh, uh, tractors and combines and so on during the 1920s, and and that you know basically transformed uh, rural North America. You know, the United States and Canada. Uh, you, you know, you you suddenly you didn't you only needed a, a fraction of your labor force. You only had instead of having a family on every quarter section of land, you had a family on every section eventually. So you depopulated the rural area, which then depopulated towns and villages and then everybody fled fled into the cities i mean that wasn't you know that we don't talk about that being disruptive but that was incredibly disruptive probably on the same yeah. scale as the current disruption so i think we need to get and you and i i guess are in, in agreement about this we need to wrap our head around the fact that for the next 10 or 20 years this is going to be a bumpy ride and there's just no way, way we're getting around it it is. And I think we need to acknowledge that it is going to be a bumpy ride and that it is very difficult for companies to figure out how to invest because it helps us be prepared for it. And it helps, you know, think about how, how to direct policy, how to help people understand that it's not going to be smooth because when it turns out not to be smooth, you know, you, you'll get a lot of, um, of backlash, I think. And I think some of that will happen regardless, but people need to understand that it's going to happen. Well, that gets us into a discussion about the nature of this energy transition and the nature of energy security, because and you see this with the with the European Union, because uh, in May. So, you know, Russia invades Ukraine in, in February by May already, like three months later, uh, the EU brings out this repower EU plan. So energy efficiency, we're going to find different supply. But the real key in there is we're going to electrify everything. We're going to ask quick. We were going to do this anyway. We were going to electrify to bring down our emissions, but now it's an energy security issue. We need to switch from from you know gas and diesel to electricity. We need to switch from natural gas heating homes and and businesses to heat pumps, and we need to electrify industrial processes. All of that, and we're going to do it just as quickly as we can possibly can do it. And it seems like you know other nations have looked at. You know, they're watching what Europe is doing and going, you know, that's not a bad idea. We might want to do some of that. I look at that and that was what they needed to be doing anyway. I think it just encouraged them to do it a bit more quickly. And honestly, energy security has always been a reason for the energy transition and to take the actions you're describing. Um, it just was somewhat forgotten or um, just sort of set aside as we were so focused on climate. 
but it has always been an argument for this. And these were always good things to do. I think it just got to be a little more obvious and in everyone's face with the current crisis. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but being a little more in everybody's face has huge implications for the pace of the energy transition. And, you know, there's this, it's, it's, it's interesting. I've interviewed, I don't know how many experts on the pace of the energy transition. And on the one hand, you have those like the international, the IEA, you know, who say, look, I mean, these are, this is a huge system that has huge inertia. Uh, you don't change this overnight. And then there are those on the other side of the argument, like Tony Seba and Kingsmill Bond from Rocky Mountain Institute, who have put, I think, convincing arguments together, you know, that in fact, uh, we have already peaked on fossil fuels. We'll be peaking on the individual, like oil is going to peak in 2030 or late 2020, you know, all that kind of stuff. But nevertheless, the the the, the decline curve is going to be much deeper than, than we expect because of the nature of energy changing from a commodity to a technology. Because then it's a whole different ballgame. What, what's your take on that? It, it, it's a great point. I um, The commodity to a technology is a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, but thinking about the current crisis and what it means for you know, the pace of transition and, and what the downside of a curve looks like, Europe is, is talking good game right now. But frankly, the kinds of things that they're talking about, they already needed to do to meet the goals they'd already set. If you look at the, the Fit for 55 goal, the 55% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030, goals to be at net zero by 2050, they already needed to do a lot of this stuff to meet their extremely lofty climate goals. And so it's getting more attention. There's another reason behind it. But if they were going to meet those goals, they needed to do a lot of these things anyway. So my question is not so much, oh, it's they're going at a completely different pace now. It's more, will they meet the pace that they've set for themselves? Not just with the Repower EU plan, but the whole Fit for 55 idea. Right. And and I, I would have, if you'd asked me this a year ago, I would have said probably not. And now I, I think, uh, because what what this new uh, scenario, this new reality that we live in, uh, is that it's freed up some private capital. Yeah. You know, gov governments, you know, we talked about, you know, the U.S. now becoming involved in industrial policy. Okay, that's 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 wonderful. And it's not just $369 billion. I mean, there are pots of money uh, laying around in, like, the Department of Energy that, I you know, I've seen estimates around $500 billion, $600 billion that's actually available, you know. And so that then unlocks, uh, you know, private capital at some ratio with five to one or six, whatever that number is. And suddenly, uh, you know, we're talking real money here. Oh, yeah. I mean, the role of that government capital, I mean, there will never be enough government capital to make a significant dent in the energy transition. And I think that's something you can't say often enough. But what that government money can do is leverage a lot more private capital. You can make investments in new technologies and help them make the leap from the lab into the real world. Um, you can de-risk investments where you're um, you know, buying down a bit of risk such that it then becomes a bankable investment. That's what government capital is for. It's to leverage the much, much larger sum of private capital out there so you can do really big things. Uh, well, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm on record as saying that not only should government do that, the Canadian governments do that because the you know uh, our provinces are actively involved in industrial policy or should be and will be, uh, but they should take equity. 
Now, Mazzucato says that they should get a return, and she thinks in terms of you know licensing fees, that, that sort of thing, because very often government's investing in IP, intellectual property, right, which has value. And, and then once you, you're getting fees, then you could put that back into the system and, and reinvest it. And uh, but Canadians, you know, we have a, a long history of public ownership here, and there are some things that there's a good argument for government to own. I know that doesn't uh, ring as true down in in the U.S., but nevertheless. But is any of that debate taking place in Washington? Government's I've heard role? a little bit of it. I've heard a little bit of talk about the potential for governments to take an equity stake. Um, I see your point, and I don't think it's a bad one. I do worry a little bit about about governments taking equity stakes and starting to crowd out some of the private investment. Um, the whole, I mean, the idea behind this and the idea behind, you know, if you consider it rapacious capitalism or you know, so, you know, positive capitalism, but that there's a ton of money to be made if you get this right. And I worry that if government comes in and takes equity stakes, that that you start to turn down that um, that incentive just a little bit. But I will say that a couple of things in the Inflation Reduction Act make me really happy. Um, I am super happy to see the um, revitalization of Department of Energy's loan guarantee program. The one that Jigger Shaw is, is managing. Exactly. And Jigger Shaw is everywhere. You can't turn around without seeing him speaking somewhere down here. But um, it kind of got a bad rap after Solyndra. And I was really disappointed in the Obama administration for not defending that whole thing more than they more than they did. The whole point of that program is that it takes risks. It should take risks. It's going to lose some. If those investments were not risky, they would be bankable and a bank would fund them. The whole idea is that they can take risks and they can buy down some risks that um, that private banks won't. And it's the whole point of the program. So I'm let, glad to see it coming back. Let Let me add a, a bit of a nuance to that. Uh, Part of that is I don't think there was the um, the uh, the academic research and some of the narrative available to the Obama administration to defend it. Frankly, I mean, there is the the narrative over the last thirty to forty years has been government shouldn't be in business, government shouldn't shouldn't invest, the government shouldn't do this, government shouldn't do that, and as and as soon as there's a failure. Uh, it's left upon as you know as it's anecdotal evidence, but it's left upon in the in the public sphere as evidence that government should you know get out of it, out of this. But the fact is, I was interviewing someone the other day, and they were saying that the failure rate for uh, government investments like Solyndra is like the failure rate is like three or four percent. It's the same as venture capital. It's you know it, yeah. it's yeah. It, I mean it's very it's very said- similar. And we I, just to finish wrap up the thought. We need to adjust our attitudes and say, look, yes, government should invest, government should support, and government, by taking risk, will occasionally fail. And that is just the nature of the game. Wrap it up, you know, write write it off the books, and let's just get on with this. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think the information, the academic information was available at that time. Shoot, if you'd have put a microphone in front of me at that time, which I couldn't do because I was in government, but I would have said the same thing, like this, this program overall is working. The idea is to take risks. You know you're going to lose a few. It is in some sense a venture capital model. And um, that was the point. If anything, um, we should be looking if they're taking enough risk because that's what it's for. Mazzucato all over again. I love it. Okay. Let, I want to I get your, your take on hydrogen because in my world, 
there are two topics that are incredibly polarized and divisive. One is nuclear, but no surprise, I guess. But the other is hydrogen. And I have uh, the anti-hydrogen uh, folks, uh, usually they're in the, the more in the electrification camp, you know. Uh, and so I guess that's their anti-hydrogen stance is understandable, but they're virulent about it. I mean, they're really adamant that hydrogen has no role to play. I interviewed a hydrogen engineer who spent 30 years in the hydrogen industry. He uh, says it just, it has no uh, use at all. But I just came back from two days in Vancouver interviewing uh, companies that are working on the demand side. You know, fuel cell companies and uh, uh, companies who are working in transportation, you know, and, and the uh, turning uh, uh, class eight semi trucks engines into high, you know, so they can run on hydrogen fuel, that, that sort of thing. And they're absolutely adamant that either they are competitive now or they will be competitive in the very in near uh, term as uh, infrastructure production scale up and prices come down and 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 so on. And and so I'm just curious, what what's your take on hydrogen's potential as a fuel of the future? Uh, yeah, what I need to do to answer that question is put on my engineering hat for just a couple of minutes and talk about what hydrogen is and what it is not. Um, anytime somebody describes it as the fuel of the future or whatever, I get a little frustrated. Um, the reason for that is hydrogen's not, it's not really a fuel. It's not an energy source. It's an energy carrier. It's like electricity. It's not like oil you make hydrogen from another form of energy. Um, the sort of old school gray way to make hydrogen is you strip the hydrogen out of natural gas. You can also sequester the carbon and have and have a, a what they call blue hydrogen. You can also split water molecules um, using renewable electricity and make green hydrogen. But you gotta remember that you make hydrogen from something else. And so I hear you saying that the electrification people are pushing against it. And from an engineering perspective, if you can electrify something directly, you should, because you lose energy every time you do a transformation. So if you take that green electricity and use it to make hydrogen, if you could have used that green electricity directly, you should have. But there are things you can't electrify. Um, there are like high heat applications, for instance, to get, to get temperatures of a certain level, you gotta burn something. That something can be fossil fuels, that something could be hydrogen. There are also times when you want some of the aspects of a fuel and hydrogen has some of those. It's energy dense, you can store it, you can put it through pipelines. Um, and so in some ways it acts like a fuel. And so it can be good to say store renewable electricity over time. You can use it for like you're talking about class eight trucks where you really need something that's more energy dense than a battery can provide. So rather than it being the fuel of the future or a total joke, we need to think about what it's good for and what it's not and focus on that. And it is good for a great number of things, but is it the whole future? No. Right. No, I, could, I couldn't agree with that more. And, and my, I have to say my, my uh, perspective on hydrogen was affected by talking to these, you know, engineers and CEOs that I did, uh, that I interviewed when I was in, when I was in Vancouver. Uh, and uh, there's some really, really cool stuff happening out in the field for this. For instance, this, uh, there's a community up in Northern British Columbia called Prince George. It's a center of forestry. Uh, in BC. And one of the companies I was talking to is putting a fueling, a hydrogen fueling station there. They're going to retrofit the logging trucks engines to run on a combination of, of diesel and hydrogen, about 40, 60, or maybe 50, 50. 
And so they bring down emissions because that's that's a big deal for the the, the logging companies that to hit climate targets. And and but they're doing it in a way that is pretty much competitive in terms of you know cost per mile uh, on the fuel cost per mile. And what I found really interesting is that they're doing it with on-site uh, electrolyzers. So, you know, you have, instead of producing, you know, the hydrogen at scale someplace in a big plant and then shipping it by pipeline or some other way uh, to this to the site, they make it right on site. And so they, they BC has 97% hydropower, so it's clean, it's reasonably priced, and and it's still expensive. It's, it's, not, it's not cheap. Uh, you know, it's 10 or $12 a, a kilogram, but the economics make sense. And more importantly, because hydrogen, especially the electrolyzers appear to be on a learning curve, uh, you know, and, and so we're going to see for every time, you know, rights law, right? We don't talk about this enough. And you're an engineer and, a, and, and, and an analyst. We don't talk about rights law where every time you double the production of something, the costs drop by X percentage, could be 5%, could be 10%. But that seems to be what we saw with batteries. We've seen it with EVs. We've seen it with all kinds of other technologies. And that's that gets back to why energy as a technology is different than energy as a commodity, because rights law is now in play. And so as we're scaling up hydrogen, we should be seeing regular decreases in the cost per unit. Have I got that correct? Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure um, what that percentage of of, of cost decline is likely to be. I don't know enough about right. the technology to know sort of where the pain points are and how we're doing on getting past them. But even just economies of scale, I mean, you're talking about using electrolyzers on site, which is going to make sense in some applications. But then you see something we're working on here in the U.S. with the Hydrogen Hubs program, where we're, um, you know, working to get green hydrogen going in areas with significant hydrogen demand. You have, you know, areas of petrochemical production and that sort of thing. And so we're also working to get economies of scale on it, and that'll bring prices down as well. And so I, I'm optimistic about, about hydrogen for the things it's good for. I just get frustrated when I hear um, it's, either, it's either terrible or, or the entire future when it's, I feel like everybody wants to find a silver bullet that fixes everything and there aren't any. And the sooner we recognize that and just sort of look at the technologies and where they fit, um, it, it, it's a much more sensible way to go about thinking. Well, to wrap up this interview, Samantha, this has been fascinating, and I'm really enjoying our conversation. We could probably do this all day, but uh, I don't think anybody wants to listen to us all do this all day. So we'll, <laughs> we'll wrap this up. And I want to get your views on where we're going for the rest of this decade. Now that we've got we've got an energy crisis, uh, so we've got high prices for for oil and gas uh, that are, I guess, would also would spur the transition over to uh, renewable energy. Uh, we've got big concerns about about security. Uh, we've got industrial policy being adopted in places like the U.S. and, and Canada, and uh, and and China clearly continuing on its role. Uh, wanting to dominate these new clean energy uh, industries. So give us your take on where we're likely to go over the next uh, seven or you know seven years, say. Oh gosh, I mean that that's a, it's a difficult question, but I will say that what is happening right now, I think is providing an accelerant to the energy to the energy transition, the transition towards greener energy. And we were already really focused on it. You talk about all the goals that, that, that large countries have set in terms of climate. But 
as I said at the beginning, I feel like the energy security part of the equation was forgotten. Now it's really front of mind and we're realizing that energy security is yet another good reason to do this. So I feel like a, a lot of areas like Europe, for instance, we're already pushing really hard, but now that they have another reason to push really hard, um, I would expect the energy transition to accelerate from what we expected before the events of 2022. Um, I've heard a lot of, you know, is this going to make things worse? Are we now exploring for oil and gas we don't need because of this, et cetera. But I think net, net, all in, you'll see the transition go faster because of what has happened. Um, not that it's a good thing at all, but, it, you know, at least there's some silver lining somewhere. Um, how fast it'll go when fossil fuel demand will peak? Oh, gosh. I, I, I don't have the models and numbers in front of me to do that. But I think... Um, with everything that's happened this year, we're going faster rather than slower. Well, maybe one final question, and that is, if you look at the uh, the projections that uh, forecasters like Bloomberg NEF do, uh, they actually are forecasting, you know, peak oil in 2030, but then the decline is slower than we expected because we'll see road transportation go down, but we'll see petrochemicals and aviation demand go up, and so that slows the... But the, the the X factor here is public policy. So we've already got stated policies. We've got those that are that the countries are are implementing. We have announced policies, which we'll see. You know who's serious and who's who's not. But is there uh, because of climate concerns? Is there the potential that you know COP twenty eight or COP twenty nine will see a even bigger push for stricter climate policies that will then free up more capital, put in more regulations and, 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 uh, you know, to, to lower uh, fossil fuel consumption. And that might accelerate it even more than we would expect today. It's a really tough question. I, I, this may be a little cynical, but I wouldn't necessarily look to the cops for those big decisions because they're um, consensus based. It's just a really difficult process in which to get things done. If you see big decisions like that, I think you'll see them made at the national level. I'll think, I think you'll see them in like G7, G20 type discussions of countries that, that can afford to do this and honestly stand to lose the most um, from a financial perspective from climate change. Um, it, but it's a really good question. And I, I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Like we go back to that's why I'm glad I'm not making oil investment decisions. <laughs> well, fair enough. Well, Samantha, it was lovely talking to you. Thank you very much for this. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.